Welcome to this, our first seminar of the series for the unit for biocultural variation and obesity. Uh, as it happens, our two series conveners are speaking today, so I've got the honor of doing a few words of introduction. Uh, just to give you a bit of background on the unit, it was formed in the spring of this year in recognition of the fact that obesity is a complex problem that will require collaboration from both the medical and social sciences for full understanding of its many and interrelated causes and also for the development of effective public health interventions. Uh, the formation of the unit is quite timely. As I'm sure many of you are aware, just three weeks ago, the government uh, program Foresight released its findings from its project Tackling Obesities, which was a two-year project in the works. Uh, some of the outputs, including the systems obesity map, will be one of our points of departure for discussion today. Um, this term, the unit is looking to build a multidisciplinary program of research, and so that's going to require expertise both from within our unit, which is currently composed of, of fellows from epidemiology, politics and public health, global health, business studies, economic history, and anthropology. And we're looking to widen the network of collaborators, uh, both within the UK and internationally. So it gives me great pleasure that we can kick off our, our series uh, with a talk, Explanations for Why People Get Fat, an Integral Approach. We'll be hearing from two of our Oxford Fellows. Dr. Mike Rayner is the director for the British Heart Foundation Health Promotion Research Group, which is based just across the road in the Department of Public Health. Uh, the group focuses on interventions for non-infectious diseases, particularly uh, cardiovascular disease and also has produced a number of publications uh, for related issues, particularly obesity. Mike's specific interests are in food policy, food pricing, and marketing of food to children. Uh, Stanley Lejazek is a professor of human ecology in the Institute of Social and Cultural Anthropology with research interests in nutrition and human re reproduction as well as anthropometry. He has ongoing research in Papua New Guinea and Poland and is also building collaborative links with uh, some of our international partners for obesity research um, in places such as Bologna, Italy, Adelaide, Australia, and Calcutta, India. So without further ado, if I could turn things over to Mike. Um, thank you very much. Um, my starting point for today's talk is um, this little map of obesity, or it's a diagram of obesity produced in this little atlas. Um, which, comes out, which came out as part of the Foresight Obesity Report, which was published um, a couple of weeks ago. And I know Sam is going to talk about it. I'm going to present a critique of this map, effectively. Um, don't bother about reading some of the words just yet. Um, and I think Stan is going to present a more... Um, it's going to try to use the map. So we present a sort of complementary approach to this, um, this subject. Um, some of the aims of my talk is to talk about, first to talk about some a thing called causal webs, which I first came across in the work of uh, Christopher Murray, who was at WHO, now at Harvard. Um, and I think they're a better way of looking at um, obesity than systems maps. Then I'm going to do a bit of critique of systems theory, including the foresight systems map. Then I'm going to propose a more integral theory for um, explaining the causes of obesity. And finally, back to causal webs to see how you can use them in an integrated way. Um, so firstly, causal webs. Uh, this is the idea said, um, which uh, a lot of people have played with, particularly Murray Lopez from WHO. What it does is uh, put 
risk factors, in this case uh, for, for disease, in boxes, um, and tries to relate them in a, in a logical and systematic way to disease outcomes on the basis that physiological and pathological, um, pathophysiological causes are more closely related to outcomes. Proximal uh, behavioural uh, risk factors are related to the physiological risk factors. And then further back from the behavioural risk factors, you have a range of different risk factors, if you like, which, uh, which uh, interact with the behavioural risk factors to, to have an effect along the chain towards a disease outcomes. This is obviously a very simple um, causal web of some of the relationships between some of the relationships between risk factors for chronic disease and chronic disease outcomes. Just unpicking some of the boxes means that you end up with a much more complicated map. Sorry, I should have said. Sorry about the camera at this moment. This is from he's from dispatches, and they're just doing a bit of filming of this um, the seminar. I'm picking some of the boxes on the previous diagram um, shows you some of the the degree of complexity that you get obviously overweight and obesity is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease can be measured in different ways Obviously, diet as a behavioural risk factor can also be looked at in terms of things like foods and nutrients and so forth. Looking at the factors which have impact upon diet, it's hugely complicated, and there are lots more. Um, I've divided them up into personal and environmental um, factors which relate to diet, so income, occupation, education, physical, cultural. But you can obviously expand that list to an infinite number, and you can also cut the lists in different ways. I do think, it, however, I am arguing that causal webs are, um, do give some sort of explanatory, have some sort of explanatory value. This was my attempt to come up with a causal web based on this rather seminal report from WHO called Diet, Nutrition and the Prevention of Chronic Disease. And what I did was look at this, this document, which you probably you should have all heard of. It's an important document produced by WHO relating, relating uh, diet, nutrition to disease outcomes, particularly chronic disease, and these, this is that book unpicked as a causal web. See, it's still quite complicated, but it does give you, there are a limited number of boxes here, and a limited number of lines between the boxes, relating different risk factors for chronic disease to chronic disease outcome, in this case CVD, cancer, but also dental disease and osteoporosis. One of the problems with causal webs is what do we mean by the boxes? Uh, and, what, and indeed, what do we mean by the lines? The lines are supposed to relate, some, relate in some sense to causality, but of course causality can be um, measured, if you like, in different ways. Here are three possible uh, ways of looking at the, uh, the width of the lines, if you like. It could, they could relate to the strength of the evidence for causality. A line could be there, could be thick, if, it's, um, if there is good evidence. But of course, Evidence doesn't necessarily mean that there's a strong relationship between a risk factor and a disease outcome or one risk factor or another. So um, the, strength of the, line, the width of the line can also relate to the strength of the, of the causal relationship. And, and thirdly, a relationship may be strong and, good, and there may be good evidence for it, but the relationship may be, not be modifiable. So you do need to bear in mind, I think, in looking at causal webs, that there are different meanings behind the lines, and also you can use the, the width of the line to indicate different things. But to show that it's not, this method of analysis is totally redundant, 
This is looking at the strength of the relationship between some uh, physiological risk factors and disease outcomes. In relating them, and these are, I've put onto this old map, which you, you should have seen before, old web you should have seen before, um, so population attributable fractions for blood pressure or blood pressure and BMI in relation to chronic disease outcomes and one behavioural risk factor. These are derived from a WHO study called the Comparative Risk Assessment Project. And I think it does show you some interesting things. Firstly, the project didn't look at some key uh, behavioural or dietary factors that saturated fat in relationship to um, chronic disease outcomes. And secondly, um, that it did give you a sort of handle on the, the importance of different risk factors to disease outcomes. So this, for example, reminds us that BMI isn't the only um, a cause of chronic disease. Their blood pressure and blood pressure are equally important and shouldn't be neglected in the um, hype around obesity at the moment. Going back even a stage further and looking at causal work, what do we mean by causation? So this is Aristotle's four causes, or four different types of causes. So causation um, as, a, as a concept, of course, is, if you think about it, is um, not um, problem, unproblematic. Aristotle divides, divides causes into material causes, like the bronze of a statue, when you're thinking about why a statue, the formal cause, the form of the statue, the efficient cause, the primary source of the, of the, of the, of the change or rest, for example, who created the statue, and finally the final cause, um, the end or the, or the sake of a thing for which a thing is done, for example, in this instance, to commemorate a famous person. And I think you can look at Aristotle's causes in relationship to obesity. It is not quite simple to say, what are the causes of obesity? There are different ways of explaining why obesity. And I think you can look at them in terms of Aristotle's four causes. The material cause of obesity is clearly the accumulation of fat and adipocytes. It's a restatement, if you like, of what obesity is in, in one sort of way. The formal cause is something like an imbalance between energy intake and energy expenditure. But that doesn't really give us much of an explanation of why obesity. And so I think you do need to look at things like the efficient cause and the final cause. The efficient causes, there are clearly multiple um, efficient causes. I've just chosen two here because they're highlighted by the Foresight Report. Individual choice as a cause of obesity and societal breakdown as a cause of obesity. But also I think we should also look at, um, to some degree, why the final cause of obesity. I have two sorts of... These are rather theological explanations because human beings are by nature greedy is, I think, a cause of obesity, and a, an evolutionary reason, a semi-theological reason, because human beings are adapted to situations of feast and famine. These are, it's a way of looking, or what I'm trying to do here is to try to explain that causation isn't, isn't unproblematic, and Aristotle has looked at it. So back to the web, what's wrong, or rather, what's back wrong with the systems map? This is the full generic map in the Atlas published by Foresight, and it comes from systems theory. I think this is where I think it's coming from. It's coming from Botanfley and Bateson, and people like Margaret Mead, the anthropologist in the 30s, who were trying to put things, trying to um, describe complex um, phenomena in terms of systems. This is just a, a systems map, if you like, two systems map, maps for um, a heating system in a house. And you can see, you can look at the information here, the reasons why why a room is, is hot or cold, depending on the user. And here, an explanation of why or how the room gets hot or cold, depending on the user. These, these are simple systems maps, which effectively are the precursor of, of the obesity report. I have problems with the um, obesity uh, 
the Foresight of BC map, partly because it seems to me that there has been little thought to put into the actual boxes and the lines. There are, in my view, this is a, a critical view, lots of missing boxes and lots of missing lines. So here is the top left-hand corner of the BC map, which is, talks about education. My question is really why education has a, why does have a, education have not have a box of its own? There are other things like social marketing and legislation, um, which is part of a model, if you like, developed by social marketeers. Why don't they have boxes? Similarly, education is separated out from the school environment. There is no box for the school environment. Um, and under, obviously, the school environment, you could have things like school meals and vending as sub-boxes. Similarly, education connects up on this map with things like media availability, media consumption, demand for health, self-esteem, food literacy, social and cultural evaluation of activity. Not unreasonable connections to make between education and some of the boxes on the map, but doesn't seem to be linked up for not really transparent reasons for things like female employment, self-esteem, or social rejection of smoking. And I question why. Secondly, the meaning of lines. As I said earlier, the meaning of lines is problematic in um, causal webs and, it e and becomes even more, I think, problematic in the systems map. They do, BC to their, uh, Foresight to their credit, do give some sort of attention to this notion of the strength of the relationship, but muddle, I think, those three versions of the strength of the relationship I talked about earlier. Um, so they do don't distinguish between the strength of the evidence and the strength of the impact. But this map, map 27 in the Atlas, does, if you like, give you the strongest relationships, however you define that, according to the Foresight process. Uh, oh, I just said the strength of the lines. Uh, could be um, the width of the lines could be in all those sorts of three ways. Um, yes, what's the yes being there? Um, that's to show this is a, that, that little bit of the left hand corner again, looking at education and it, the strength of its relationships with the boxes there, which I don't entirely understand why there should be a strong relationship between media consumption, for example, and media availability. Perhaps that's obvious. Finally, um, what Foresight does is try to create some relationship between boxes. In causal webs, um, as I showed you earlier, the further away from the right-hand corner you go, um, the, the more, more distal you are getting to, to causation, if you like. Here, I don't think it's, it's clear that things from the centre, which is the physiological causes of obesity here, mean anything much. But what Foresight have done have, have, has grouped different boxes into, into um, I can't remember what they're called now, or, um, thematic clusters, that's right. And these are the thematic <coughs> clusters. Social psychology, individual psychology, food production, food consumption, physiology, individual physical activity, and physical activity environment. I think this is a, these are a mixture, and a rather random different mixture of different clusters. Firstly, we have disciplines. If you like, you have sociology and social psychology and physiology. But you, you do actually miss anthropology, which I'm sure you'd be outraged about. But also other disciplines like sociology. And overemphasize, in my view, things like psychology and physiology as causes of obesity or related to obesity. It should be about them. I think everybody concedes that um, physical activity and diet are equally important. And I, I, I guess they have made some attempt to make sure that the food boxes, food production, food consumption, Individuals physical activity environment are equal in size or have an equal number in them. Um, but the types of determinant, uh, 
the boxes, the, the categories are also not only related to disciplines, but types of determinant. And those I find odd. They have a determinant named food production or a cluster named food production. But we know from all our, our work that it's not just food production that's important, but retailing, catering, marketing, etc. How much longer have I got? Sorry. Five minutes. I'll rush through the end. Right. My alternative then um, is to come up with something called integral theory. This is based on a guy called Ken Wilbur and a book called A Theory of Everything. What he does is try to use this map to uh, explain, uh, to look at reasons for things. And he divides the reasons for things into individual objective, group objective, group subjective, and individual subjective. In other words, there are explanations for why individuals behave the way they do, and, and other explanations for why groups behave the way they do. There are objective reasons, which are really from a realist and positivist tradition for explaining why people behave the way they do and subjective reasons from a more social constructivist or um, uh, subjectivist um, point of view. And he divides, or by following him, divides the different ologies, the dis different disciplines, a la the um, obesity map, in, into, the, into these four boxes. And I think it's obvious that physiological and psychological are about individuals and their objective disciplines, organisational and sociological are more about groups and can be objective but sometimes subjective. Now here are historical cultural explanations of why um, be groups behave the way they do and theological, um, what he calls transpersonal um, reasons for why individuals behave they do from a subjective point of view. And here is just a simple way you can use this sort of, these sorts of disciplines to look at the way reason why people get fat. So from a purely physiological point of view, you can say if energy expenditure intake exceeds energy expenditure, people will get fat. And that's a physiological explanation. But clearly by itself it is almost valueless. It doesn't mean much, or it has a little bit of explanatory value. But um, you need other types of explanations, obviously, if you're going to look at why people get fat. So um, as you move down here towards the psychological um, reasons why people get fat, as um, quite well um, emphasised within the Foresight Report. You get things like, if people are confronted by a range of different foods, they eat more fat, and there is, uh, get more fat. And there is clearly good evidence from um, psychological experiments, even, that if you confront people with a range of different foods, people will eat more of them. You know, the buffet situation is the anecdote, but it, you can do it in the lab. Why, but um, that doesn't actually explain why we are now in the modern society confronted with a range of different foods. Um, so there are sociological reasons why there are, is an increased availability of different energy foods. For example, one reason being econo increasing economic wealth leads to an increasing availability of different energy foods. Again, obviously you need explanations for that, but it's moving towards a group-based um, explanation of obesity. That's purely on the objective, um, realist based philosophy side of things. If you move into the, uh, the subjective, more social constructivist view of things, people like Baudrillard have, I think, some explanatory value. He talks about post-modernity, people are defined by what they consume rather than what they produce. And I think this sort of story has something to tell us about obesity. If we are now defined by what we consume rather than what we produce, then it seems more, um, some, it has some bearing upon this issue of not only obesity, but also things like global warming. My uh, theological um, reasons are things like people are by nature self-interested, and on the Today programme this morning, um, 
there's a quote from the Tao Te Ching. I can't pronounce this correctly. Some people can pronounce this properly. Um, where Lao Tzu says that greed is the seed of apocalypse. And I think that is that some sort of explanation, which is different from um, uh, people are eating... Uh, Obesity is about energy intake versus expenditure, which has some interesting, has something interesting to say about um, <coughs> obesity. Just to quickly go back a bit, um, uh, it's well known from sort of health um, health promotion, which is the sort of discipline I work in, that there are thousands of different ways of constructing models of uh, what the what, Models of the way people, why people behave the way they be, behave. We 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 know we've got things like health belief model, theory of reason, action, social cognitive theory, all firmly grounded in psychology. We've got things like diffusion of innovation theory, um, firmly grounded in organisational theory, community organisation theory, firmly grounded in sociology. System theory is only really one method. I think it's based on organisational. Uh, comes from an organisational background for one reason for explaining away obesity. It isn't the only way you can look at the causes of obesity, clearly. And how you might integrate theories briefly into, um, a, more into a more integrated theory, and why that would actually lead, to more, lead in my view, to more action. Here, I, all I've tried to do here in this set of slides is to integrate two theories. One, the health belief model, a psychological theory, with... Um, the, an economic model of, of behaviour. Uh, um, one relates um, the psychological model uh, links things like perceived susceptibility to a problem that perceived threat to self-efficacy to energy intake. The economic model fits things like taxes and subsidies to energy intake through income. And you can combine these two models because basically they both end up with an energy intake model and you can put boxes between you can integrate boxes from one model into the other model. So income clearly in the economic <coughs> model has, does have effects on the uh, health belief model, particularly in terms of perceived costs of a specific action. You, this is just one example of integrating one sort of theory with another sort of theory, in this case a psychological <coughs> theory with an economic theory. And why I like it is because it leads to things that I'm particularly interested in. And I think that's really what Foresight is all about. It's being developed by people who are interested in particular particular things. So I think you'll hear from Stanley, there's a big emphasis on um, psychological ambivalence, largely because one of the key people in Foresight was a psychological ambivalence person. Anyway, what I'm interested in is things like agricultural subsidies, compositional standards for foods, for meals, vending standards, food labelling, and commercial advertising. And I think having some sort of integrated theory doesn't mean that you can fit the things that you're actually interested in, in doing, and actually would actually, in my view, have a big effect on obesity into your causal, into your theory of causation. So that's my last slide. Thank you.
Okay, uh, we'll move to part B of the talk. I should state two things. First of all, there is um, a photocopy of the integrated map that Michael showed. It shouldn't come up to George Bush. I'm not sure why. Have George Bush. We should have that. Um, and uh, the other thing is that uh, Mike and I sat down on Friday and decided that we would run a tag team. Um, Mike would destroy and I would pull back together uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the issue. Okay, the focus is on the Foresight model uh, and uh, the systems map. We're all told, <coughs> we believe it, is unique. No other country on the planet has an obesity systems map. Um, lots of people are interested. There's been huge amounts of media about this. That is a taking over. We, every journalist has a take on it, even Michael Portillo. Um, <clears throat> what I want to do in this presentation is to take a different approach, which is to work with the logic of the systems map. So rather than saying there are different approaches, take the systems map um, and identify possible lines of multidisciplinary research in obesity with the best payoff. Um, I have to say that um, I am not a uh, convert to the uh, obesity map, other than to say it's there, um, can we see what we can do with it? So it doesn't exclude other lines of multidisciplinary research. Also, dispatchers aren't interested in me, so I can relax. <laughs> uh, okay, this is the map. You've already seen it and have internalized it, know it well. By the end of this talk, um, you should all be able to uh, 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 write an essay about it. Okay. Uh, when I look at it, one, I, see, I see pasta. Um, lines everywhere, um, a, a, you know, the occasional meatball in the middle of it, um, and something, meat sauce in the middle that's driving everything. Or, as um, Andrew Jack has written in The Lancet just the other day, um, rhinoceros guts. He sees rhinoceros guts. I don't know where Andrew Jack is from, maybe South African, I don't know. Um, but he says it doesn't explain very much. And we always have to be pro uh, careful um, with um, systems, uh, uh, systems models because um, you can link anything to everything um, if, you, if you wish. Um, uh, you know, uh, God, the United States, war, opium production, Tony Blair, um, etc. Um, there's a huge number of factors in the obesity systems map, uh, 270, and these are the various ones. These are the domains, um, uh, thematic clusters that uh, Michael has already, has already discussed. And what I want to do is just to um, take a look at some of these, uh, some of these relationships and to identify um, uh, ways in which uh, the existing map might give us some clue about um, new ways of, of approaching obesity. About 25 years of physiology, and as a number of people have said, including, including Susan Jebb, who's a physiologist herself, 25 years is long enough to hang on to a problem before you hang it hand over to somebody else. Um, okay, in this systems map, there are these things called key determinants, as being some kind of pivotal, pivotal things. Force of dietary habits, um, that you know, people want to... Uh, you, know what they like and they will eat what they like and they're stuck with their, 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 their habits regardless of what happens. And these are very, very strong. Um, the level of appetite control. Some people have got good appetite control, other people less good, more disinhibited in respect to eating. So those are two of the key areas. 
physical activity is also seen as another key uh, uh, pivotal area. And Greg Mayo up here is the fourth pivotal area. Okay, um, that is the uh, psychological ambivalence map. Uh, Michael on Friday said, wouldn't it be good if we get a picture of Greg Mayo? There he is. I spoke to him yesterday, and he's going to give a talk in this seminar series later on. He's very happy to come and, and, and explore this uh, psychological ambivalence. Okay, so here we have force of diet habits, psychological ambivalence, um, appetite control, and uh, physical activity as our kind of pivotal points. And I'm just going to work with those. I'm not concerned with energy balance. I'm not going to get into the core of the thing, which is you know, how energy imbalance might happen. But really, just these, um, uh, these gates, if you will, to energy imbalance. Um, and then attached to this is a whole range of first tier variables. So on the map, there's, first of all, the first level that, 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 that keys into, into the gates. And then there's a whole bunch of second-tier levels, which then map onto the first one. And one thing the map doesn't do very well is separate out first level from second level. That is appalling. Really, you can't tell from the map what is first level and what is second level. It takes a lot of squinting over lots of little boxes to start to, start to work out what's happening. So, um, in among the knitting, what can we find? Uh, core principles for tackling obesity. It's been said many times, and yesterday at the ASO meeting in London, many times it was said by the great and the good, um, that we need a system-wide approach. Changing one thing won't change anything. As Susan Jebb said, um, obesity system is like, like a balloon. Uh, you squeeze in one area and it pops out in another area, and you need to contract the whole balloon. So that's her, that's her analogy. Um, a whole range of priorities, long-term sustained interventions, ongoing evaluation, engagement of stakeholders inside and outside of government, high priority prevention of health problems with clear leadership, accountability, strategy, etc. All good things, things that we want to know about. But then, uh, what can we get from the system, uh, uh, the uh, uh, obesity map, that will help us identify which parts of the system might give us higher payoff? Now, Michael's already alluded to um, the integrated map that shows strengths of impacts and they are defined as very high, high, medium, limited, low or none. And that's all on the map but it takes a lot of squinting to, to identify. Most impacts on this map are of medium, limited or low strength. That's exactly the problem. That most of these lines, they appear strong but in fact they are um, on themselves, uh, by themselves are of, uh, are of limited utility. So the first thing is, of the relationships that we have, do we have any high-strength um, uh, uh, impacts on the four key determinants? Primary appetite control, level of physical activity, psychological ambivalence. The answer is no for any of those, according to the math. As I say, I'm working with the internal logic of the math. The one place where there seems to be something is force of dietary habits. And... And there, in this particular box, okay, I would highlight just this little area, just these linkages within all of this. Force of dietary habits, convenience of food offerings. That is, food is very convenient. Go down to the canteen, you can grab it. Food is everywhere. Food is easy. Food is one of the easiest things on this planet, in Britain at any rate. And then the rate of eating. That is, you know, how quickly <coughs> we, we throw down our lunch and move on to the next thing. Um, in some places, um, we characterise the French as having long, leisurely lunch times. 
Now, of course, if you have long leisurely lunch times, then you can eat to appetite because you have the time to, for your physiology to respond to what you're ingesting. Um, you could alternatively throw down a Big Mac, and by the time you've thrown one down, you're ready to throw down another one because you really haven't, you know, your physiology has been caught up in it. Okay, that's not channel four. Um, so that's one particular, that's the only linkage that I can find. I'm quite satisfied with that because my one short review uh, for, for the Foresight Report was obesity, a disorder of convenience. I don't claim to have much power, um, but um, my paper was entirely about, about the issue of, of convenience in, in, uh, in, in society. So what are the implications if we just take the one strong link? The model might be wrong. Yes, we agree. Uh, secondly, um, if we want to do research into causative links between force of dietary habits, food convenience, and the rate of eating, what kinds of disciplines, what kind of tools do we have in our toolkit that will allow us to engage in that? Well, first of all, I would evoke history, um, simply because obesity hasn't just happened. Um, that there has been immense social change um, across certainly the last 50 years. And historians have the tools that will allow us to examine those changes. So whatever we might find in our databases has to be contextualized. And if, um, if you're a public health person, for example, or an anthropologist, for example, you might be grabbing at straws when you say, oh, well, this must have happened across the last 50 years or so, and rely on an anecdote. That is very poor scholarship. That's very poor research. You go to the people who know, always. Um, then we can do research into social class, the relationships between dietary habits, convenience of food, and rate of eating, and we have considerable uh, work on that. And also we should engage with urban geographers, uh, because the food environment is very much a structured urban environment in places like the UK. And this map, we should stress, is focused on the UK, it's not focused on anywhere else. Um, although it's been said that this map should universalize to other places. Exactly how is not clear, totally not clear. Um, and we should be able to translate existing knowledge into intervention based on uh, those uh, uh, interdisciplinary threads. We should be able to, 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 to put this into some kind of um, material base for uh, public health people, be able to uh, give focus to existing frameworks. The Angelo process, for example, which comes from uh, Victoria in Australia, um, which is Boyd Swinburne's uh, particular, uh, uh, particular pet and something that's been applied in many different places. Uh, uh, in analyzing so-called obesogenic environments, we have this environment type, physical, economic, policy, and social cultural. I have a dispute with this, but the model's out there and has been shown to have some kind of effectiveness in some places. So if it's working, you know, why, 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 why play around with it? Well, Maybe we want to reconfigure this to think about obesogenic environments as convenient environments. And when we start thinking about convenience, we might actually think about um, policy, sociocultural environments, economic uh, structures in a different way, because now we're focused on a very different, uh, a different set of things, convenience in relation to consumption. Okay, the other thing is there are lots of grey arrows in this model, which... Uh, are not talked about a lot. The grey arrows mean we have no knowledge. So, no information. But, these are places where it's felt there should be relationships. So these are putative, unexamined relationships. And they are, lot, there are lots of them on the map. And the map actually is not 
a, uh, a, 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 a material uh, uh, display of uh, extensive knowledge. In fact, there's probably as much not known as there is known on this map. So looking at the grey arrows, uh, are there postulated linkages that are strong? So primary appetite control, there's no direct postulated linkages to that. Level of physical activity, no direct postulated linkages. Um, but psychological ambivalence should be influenced by food literacy, according to the group. Um, and force of dietary habits should be influenced by the demand for indulgence or compensation as a psychologist would have it. So, you know, we want to give ourselves a treat, for example. Um, it should be related to alcohol consumption, and I'm sure there is limited evidence about that, but it's, it's, it's contradictory. It should be associated with purchasing power. There's good evidence for that in the United States, and there's good evidence for that in France. Um, less good evidence for that in the UK, as far as, far as the group is concerned. Um, so there may be um, a range of other factors that we might want to, might want to look at. So, research into causative links between psychological ambivalence and food literacy. Um, it's not me, is it? Okay, someone with the same ringtone. Clearly, we're obviously meant to be married. Um, sorry? Um, okay, um, if, we, if we focus on psychological ambivalence and food literacy, what research do we need? Um, we need to identify groups with varying levels of food literacy. What is food literacy? It's knowing where your food comes from. Um, it's knowing the food chain, the food system. Um, Jamie Oliver did a very good one on his television series where he showed children different, uh, uh, different vegetables and half the children didn't know what they were um, and where they guessed, they guessed wrong. So that's low food literacy. Um, so, and working with psychometric measures in association with uh, different levels of uh, food literacy. Um, and then, what, how do we turn this into practice? Primary and translational research with food literacy groups. What are these? Um, I couldn't find much of this in the UK. The best one I found was actually Harvard the University has a food literacy project um, that focuses on food and society, agriculture, nutrition, food preparation, community. And the project goal is to promote enduring knowledge, enabling consumers to make informed food choices. So if you know where your food comes from, you know how far it's had to travel and so on, this may change how you actually consume, what you buy and how you buy it. Okay, this is our local, uh, local equivalent. There are projects on food literacy um, in Australia, growing food for kids, school garden programs and so on. Um, and some of, some of this is starting to, to, to translate in this, in this country. Okay, um, what about force of dietary habits um, and demand for compensation, indulgence, alcohol consumption, purchasing power? Then we need to engage with a whole bunch of um, uh, people who know how to examine social class. Uh, we might want to uh, engage with food uh, with management groups um, because demand for indulgence, compensation, how weight management groups form communities, an important uh, area of research which is totally neglected at the moment. Um, integrating studies of alcohol habits with those of food habits would also be uh, a useful way to go. So these are a few things that the model might be able to present. Okay, and this is the problem we all have. Um, the, the, uh, the idea of herding cats has come up several times that we are 
individual researchers or researchers with research groups with different agendas around Oxford all doing different things. Um, and what we have to do is push obesity high enough on the, uh, on the agenda for these cats to want to congregate in a room together. And I thank all the cats in the room today for being here. Thank you.